Acts chapter 16 is where we'll be today. We'll be starting in verse 25, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's word together. Acts 16, 25 and following. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and deported. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the truth revealed in it. We thank you for the gospel on display for us here today. And so, Lord, as we come now to this time of studying your word, of reading it, I pray, Lord, that that the Holy Spirit would work as your word is read, that he would work to enlighten us, to help us to see and understand truly and rightly, Lord, that we might be blessed and that you might be glorified in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, children, you are dismissed, and everyone else, you can have a seat. If you recall from last week, really the last few weeks if you were here, you'll know that we find ourselves here today in this uh, portion of Acts chapter 16 and the final installment of three salvation stories here in the city of Philippi. We've already seen how the Lord is uh, in, in a somewhat humble and quiet way, how he saved, how he regenerated, how he redeemed Lydia, this seller of purple goods. We saw last week how the Lord intervened in a far more miraculous way, a far more uh, intrusive way, certainly to the lives of the people involved, but especially 
in the life of this young slave woman who was oppressed by a demon, who was fortune-telling by the power of the demon that was inside of her, and uh, the Lord, by the power of, uh, of the Holy Spirit, and through Paul and Silas, cast the demon out of this young woman and, and saved her, redeemed her, and, uh, and so uh, brought about the turn of events that would eventually lead to where we find them here today. And as we start this, this passage, you might forget as we read verse 25 where exactly Paul and, and Silas are. We find them here having been falsely accused of stirring up issues, of causing the, the Romans to go about customs and practices that were not lawful. And as we know, those were false accusations in a very real sense. And after these false accusations were brought, there was a, a frenzy that was started, a sort, of, a sort of riot that ensued, and they were immediately taken, and they were taken before the magistrates, beaten with rods, and ultimately put in prison. Not just put in prison, but put in the deepest part of the prison, in stocks with their feet, and their legs bound in stocks so that they were unable to move and so that they were experiencing excruciating pain and torment. That church family, is where we find Paul and Silas today. As we see here, as I've titled it, what I consider to be the weirdest prison riot ever. The world's weirdest prison riot. For indeed, what we see here in this prison is a bit of a riot. A riot in the sense that it is somewhat chaotic, that it is out of the ordinary, that it was extreme. And yet in this prison riot, we have the opportunity to see the gospel at work, the glory of God and the power of God magnified, and lives ultimately changed. And as we look through this story of this uh, most strange prison riot, we start by seeing in verse 25 and 26, these two, Paul and Silas, which is also point number one if you're taking notes, and we see how these men are Eternal optimists. Eternal optimists. These are two men who, as they find themselves here in the pit of despair, in the worst place that a human could possibly imagine themselves here in this time, just about at least, in the deepest part of the prison, in stocks, having been beaten, and we know that they were beaten and then immediately put in prison. There was no time to rest or recover. They were severely beaten and immediately put into prison. They had been through a a whole heck of a lot, hadn't they? And as we looked at briefly last week, we see even in the midst of all of that, we come now to verse 25, and we find two men having been mistreated, having been beaten, having been tormented, and having been locked away, now celebrating God's goodness, celebrating their God, worshiping Him, singing and praying. As they are here in the deepest dungeon, as they are actually captives here in Philippi, we see two men acting not as though they are imprisoned in a dungeon, but acting as though they're at a, a church lock-in to a certain degree, where these men are not complaining, they're not griping, they're not mumbling, but mumbling and murmuring, but they are rejoicing. They are singing praise. They are praying to the Lord. They are worshiping. There's something quite powerful about the picture that we see here of Paul and Silas 
And something quite powerful about any Christian who, who stands in the midst of, of the world or in the midst of a difficult situation or terrible circumstances and stands firm in his convictions and his confidence in the truthfulness and faithfulness of God and his word. There's something about it, isn't there? To see a Christian, to see one standing, even though everything around them would say, you have no reason to rejoice, you have no reason to celebrate, you have no reason to praise, standing resolved nonetheless to stay, what else have I to do? What else can I give to the Lord who has been nothing but faithful, nothing but good to his people? Paul and Silas here demonstrate a trust in their God that's much like that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, isn't it? But one, of the, one of the most amazing stories uh, of resilience, of faithfulness to God, of resolve in the face of difficulties, as, as we recall the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who, as they were here in exile, and King Nebuchadnezzar had built this, this statue, this golden figure, and had given the command... When the music plays, you're to bow down to this statue, this golden image. And we know the story. We know what happens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse. They say, we cannot, we cannot worship this idol that you have set up, for we worship the one true God. Knowing full well the consequences, which were to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Whoever doesn't obey, whoever doesn't bow and worship, whenever they hear the music play, was to be immediately executed, cast into the furnace. And they were fully aware of that. And yet they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is their response when he comes and he tells them, obey, bow. Here's what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, that is, if we are to be cast into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand and we hear that right there right and we think yeah that's right god is going to save them and we know god does save them doesn't he 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 saves them from this fiery furnace but that's not the end of their proclamation of their declaration to king nebuchadnezzar but what do they go on to say they say our the god we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king but if not be it known to you o king we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up the resolve of of shadrach meshach and abednego extended far beyond what the lord might do for them in this worldly in this physical circumstance for indeed this proclamation that they have just given to the king even if they had been cast into the fiery furnace and instantly been burned to dust. The proclamation that they had just given to the king, the stand that they had taken would be no less true. God would have been no less faithful to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if they had burned up in the fiery furnace that instant. Why? Because we know that even through those flames, the Lord would have saved them that he would have brought them through the other side, perhaps not physically and bodily the way he did, but they would have immediately been with the Lord. 
they would have immediately gone to see the reality of what they had put their faith and their hope and their trust in, even if they had burned up in an instant. So Paul and Silas here stand, sit, lie, whatever position they had been put in, in the deepest part of this dungeon, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not grumble and complain. They do not gripe and moan. They do not submit and and cry and and beg to be released and that they'll, they'll stop doing what they're doing. Nope. They rejoice and they celebrate and they pray and they sing hymns. They have their own little prayer meeting right here in the prison. Paul would later write to the church in Philippi, this very place, and he would say to them, encouraging them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the church would have known full well that Paul knew what he was saying. He knew what he was talking about. And he backed it up by his actions as he here and Silas in the deepest part of the prison were found rejoicing, praising God, singing hymns, and worshiping. We touched on this briefly last week, but it's often hard for us to to worship, isn't it? Oftentimes, because of our life circumstances, because of the difficulties around us, because of maybe the sin of others, or perhaps even at times because of the sin we know to be true of ourselves, we find it hard to come and to gather together with our brothers and sisters. We find it hard to sing the truth about God because our emotions, because our heart, because our feelings are lacking, because they're weak. But what do we see here on display? That despite our circumstances, despite what we might be going through, and I doubt any of us have found ourselves in a Philippian jail in the deepest part in stocks after having been beaten. I doubt any of us have found ourselves there, but wherever you have found yourself, God is still faithful. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. And he's therefore worthy of our worship. In fact, whatever it is that you're going through in life, whatever hardships you might be facing, whatever difficulties you might be going through, there is not a single thing that is better for you and for your soul than to worship your God and your creator. It's what we were created for. We were created to worship. It is the medicine that we desperately need when sin feels so strong, when evil seems so overwhelming, when when wickedness seems to reign. The faithfulness of God is still true. And we need to be reminded of that and we need to sing the praise for our Lord and our Savior. Here then, as they are conducting this prayer meeting, Paul and Silas were singing, they were praying, and then something amazing happens in verses 27 through 30. Excuse me, uh, in verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This miraculous moment, after they were worshiping, praising the Lord, in fact, during their worship, during their praise, the ground begins to shake, the walls begin to crumble, and immediately their bonds are broken. Not theirs only, but the whole prison is immediately released from their bonds. And then we see the next scene where the jailer comes in. We see in verse 27, the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Here we see this Philippian jailer in, a, in desperation, knowing full well there's no reason why there should be anyone left in this prison. 
the walls are destroyed, the bonds are broken, I have failed. And it was the fate of one in his position. After failing in this way, losing the prisoners, the only recourse he had in order to salvage his honor was to kill himself. And so that's what he planned to do. He drew his sword, and as, a, as he was about to drive it into himself, Paul cries out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer runs in, and seeing all the prisoners there, and seeing Paul and Silas, then asks a question for the ages, which is point number two, a question for the ages. And what does he say? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the question for the ages, isn't it? The question that everyone in the world needs to ask. And we ask, where does this question come from? Where did it come from in the heart of this Philippian jailer? You see, I don't think that the the jailer was asking, how can I be saved from from the consequences of my misgivings of, of the prison being destroyed? For indeed, the consequences that he thought were his were removed. He hadn't lost a single prisoner. Not a single one of them had escaped. I don't think it was a a fear of, of death and the death sentence that he thought that he was initially under. I don't think that was what he was asking for salvation from. The salvation that this jailer was referring to and the one to which Paul and Silas give the answer is in reference to what he realized is the biggest problem of his life. That he stood guilty, condemned before God, and in desperate need of help. He had encountered the power of God. As the Lord, in the midst of this prayer meeting, shook the foundations. Enough that it woke him from his sleep. Destroyed the prison, destroyed the bonds. This amazing display of power. But not only that, he had witnessed the amazing trust and faithfulness of Paul and Silas, who for some reason, the only explanation is because of the great confidence they had in their God, refused to escape. This man had encountered the power of God, and it not only shook the prison wall, it shook this sinner to his core. And so it should. The Bible is clear about the wrath of this holy and powerful God that is gonna come upon unrighteousness. And perhaps this man hadn't become fully acquainted with all the ins and outs of God's wrath, of God's judgment, all the ins and outs of salvation. He clearly knew something. He had heard the songs and the hymns, perhaps, that Paul and Silas had been teaching. He had, he had maybe heard what this slave girl had proclaimed about Paul and Silas, that they were sent from God, proclaiming the way of salvation. Whatever knowledge he had acquired from these bits and pieces that he had gathered, one thing he knew, that this God that these men served was a powerful God, and it caused him to fear and to tremble. And I think probably it caused all the other prisoners to fear and tremble as well, which may very well be why they didn't try to escape either. I mean, what a scene this must have been. They might not have even known how to react as the walls crumbled, as things fell, their bonds were broken. And then there sit the two men who were singing, who were praising God when all of it happened. I imagine they probably said, you know what? 
We're just going to follow their lead. And so they did. And so this jailer was brought face to face with the power of God and realized that God's wrath, that his judgment was due him, which is a right realization. For indeed, the Bible's clear about the wrath of God that's due upon unrighteousness. And there will be no escaping for the wicked. Their fate is described in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, as the sixth seal is opened and God's wrath, his judgment is poured out. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is the question that the unrighteous, that the wicked will ask when the wrath of God is poured out. And it's a question that thankfully this man has recognized to be the question of all questions. What must I do to be saved? How can I escape the wrath of this God who has such power, such authority, a sovereign over all things? How can I be saved? That was this man's question, and that should be the question of all in the world who realize their sinfulness. And then after this great question is asked, we see the simplicity of the gospel message laid out in verses 31 and 32, where Paul and Silas answer and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. What a beautifully simple message that they, they delivered to this Philippian jailer, this man who was so desperate, who was so afraid, who recognizes that the Lord's wrath is rightfully due upon him. And what is their message to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The answer that we see here is a common refrain of Paul and of the New Testament, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Just as important to what is said here, though, is what is not said here. Nothing is said of obedience. Nothing is said of the law. Nothing is said of certain pillars. Nothing is said of penance. Nothing is said of any other kind of performance that you can imagine. Why? Not that the law isn't important. Not that obedience isn't, doesn't matter or that the Bible doesn't speak to those things for believers but that none of those things can save you. Not even a little bit. Not even an iota. They don't move us towards salvation one inch. We are justified before God. We are made right. The answer to this question of how we can be saved from the wrath of God is answered only one way, by faith in Christ. For believers, for those who experience the change that God takes place, that God works in a person, certainly yes, to all those who would, who would argue, obedience will follow. For all believers, for all who trust in God, for all who are his people, his sheep, we hear his voice and we obey his commands. But none of those things save us. It is by faith alone in Christ alone that we are saved. Sometimes I, I feel like I say the same things over and over again as I 
as I preach. I think this is one of those cases where if you have been coming to church here for more than, than a handful of weeks, you've heard me say this. But I think it's, it's a part of what it means to study the scriptures, to preach the gospel, is that we as human beings, being forgetful, being slow to hear and understand, we need to be reminded regularly. The scriptures remind us regularly of what salvation is, of what the gospel is. After telling this man this simple truth of the gospel message, they go on then to explain to him and to his family all of it in detail. And then we see the result in verses 33 through 4, that of cleansing and rejoicing. The Bible says, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and baptized them at once. And, and, excuse me, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. These two prisoners, Paul and Silas, received a kind of treatment now that was not the normal treatment for prisoners, was it? But then again, they were not normal prisoners. No other prisoners would have, would have allowed the, the chains to be removed, the bonds to be broken, the walls to be torn down and stay there. So this jailer, having received from them the good news of the gospel, takes them to his house, but after cleansing them, washing them of their wounds, and we see here this jailer as he washes them of their wounds, he cleans the wounds of Paul and Silas, and at the same time, that very night, he himself, while he cleaned the wounds of, of these two prisoners, he himself was cleansed of his sins. And his was a far greater filth, and his cleansing was a far more beautiful thing than even that of the wounds of Paul and Silas. For this man now, not a single ounce of guilt remained that needed to be dealt with. He had been washed white as snow by the blood of Christ. Just like all who trust in Christ. If you put your faith in him, if you trust in him, then just like Paul and Silas, you can sing and you can rejoice because all the wrath of God that is due you was taken by Christ. And he sees you now, not in light of your own sin and how well you live, but he sees you in light of Christ's righteousness that has been granted to us by our faith. But the good times just keep on rolling because not only was this man saved from the wrath of God, but his whole family as well. The Lord didn't just stop by saving this one jailer, by this, saving this one man, but then moved through his whole household. And each and every one of them believed the gospel and were baptized. What a beautiful story of God's saving of not just one man, but a whole family. It's like a bonus. We talk about these three conversions in Acts chapter 16, but really it's a whole host of conversions. We have Lydia and her household, now we have the Philippian jailer in his household. The church here in Philippi, just like that, has grown enormously. And then we get to verses 35 through 40, and I don't need to say much about these verses uh, other than this is uh, a sort of setting the record straight here in verses 35 through, 35 through 40, where as the magistrates called, they sent the police, they said, okay, go and, and set them free from prison, send them on their way, Right? And Paul says, now hang on a minute. 
They were happy to publicly humiliate us, to beat us, to do all of this in the sight of everyone. But now that they're going to let us go, probably realizing, okay, they really didn't do anything illegal. We better let them go, right? They're going to do it in silence? I don't think so. And Paul says, you need to go tell them to get their heinies down here and let us out themselves to where all can see. The Apostle Paul here, as much as it might seem like it, was not interested in shaming the magistrates, though certainly it would have been a bit of a shame for them, right? He wasn't trying to get revenge on the magistrates, though in our pride we kind of go, you know, that's right, stick it to them, right? Makes us feel a little happy to see them having to go all the way down there, realizing that, oh my goodness, these are Roman citizens, what have we done, right? In fact, they were the ones who, who broke Roman law by beating these men and imprisoning them unjustly. But that's not the reason Paul does this. Paul wasn't trying to be vindictive. He wasn't trying to gain revenge. It is most probable that Paul was most concerned about setting the record straight for all who had heard these false accusations about their actions and their intentions in Philippi. In other words, Paul used this uh, his Roman citizenship. He used this as leverage. He leveraged it for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, he used it to, to redeem, not to redeem, but to clear his reputation so that there would be no misunderstanding, so that they would not be seen as, as criminals, so that there would be no hindrances to the gospel if they can possibly be removed. Paul says, you need to come out and let us out so that it could be made clear that you were in error that we are innocent. Even this, in this, Paul's concern, as it so often is, is with removing any potential obstacle to the hearing of the gospel. That's Paul's concern here. Not vengeance, not revenge, not getting even. He's concerned about the gospel even in this. As believers today, we, we know that it's unlikely and maybe if you don't know this, let me just go ahead and tell you, it's unlikely that the Lord is, uh, is going to cause an earthquake, uh, miraculously breaking physical change and, and stocks as we worship him or even when we find ourselves in difficult places. That's unlikely to happen. But God's willingness to break the shackles of sin and self-deception are just as strong today as they were then. God's willingness to free the captor. God's willingness to display his power and to save people is still on display. But it is by God's sovereignty, by his will, that he chooses to do so by his word. As the gospel is preached, as the, as the word of God is read, is proclaimed, is shared with one another, that is how the Lord chooses to work, to break bonds, to free captives. What was the order of events here? Paul and Silas demonstrate their firm resolve, their trust in God and in his faithfulness. The Lord demonstrates his power and his sovereignty over all things by breaking down, utterly destroying this prison and, and releasing their chains. The jailer then is cut to the heart by what he's witnessed and by the testimony of these missionaries and is brought to a place of humility. And then the simple gospel is proclaimed and it changes his life forever not his only, but his family's also. If you're a believer here in this place today, if you're a Christian, 
then I would encourage you to look to Paul and Silas as your example. To trust in the Lord and to worship the Lord in all circumstances. Notice their compassion that they have on this jailer, this one who's responsible for making them miserable. It's this jailer who put them in stocks, who stuck them in the prison, and who was responsible for keeping them there. And it would have been understandable if they had left, if they had gotten out of there, or even if they had let this man kill himself, knowing what he had done to them. But that's not what they do. They take compassion on this jailer, and they share the gospel with him. They proclaim the good news of salvation even to this man who was holding them captive. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. To trust in him, to rejoice in him, and to as often as we have occasion, even when we don't feel like it, even when it's not someone we like, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian in here today, then I would encourage you to look at this jailer and learn from him. God is a holy and powerful God. And just as this man realized, he's a God who will not tolerate wickedness, who will not tolerate evil. And your problem, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ, is the same as this Philippian jailer's. You are a sinner who will one day stand before a holy and all-powerful God. What will your plea be? What will you point to in hopes to gain an audience and hopes to, and hope to be saved before a holy God who rightfully has to punish evil for he is just? Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no plea. You have no argument. You have no hope. And the message to you, though, is the same as the message was to this man. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. That is the gospel message. Put your trust not in yourself, in your works, in your accomplishments, in what you can do and how obedient to the law you can be, but trust only in the finished work of Christ alone. That's the only place where hope is found. That's the only sacrifice that could ever be enough. If you realize your estate before the Lord, then turn from your sin and run to Christ and find in him hope. Find in him joy. Find in him rest from your labors. The Lord says in Isaiah 55, 1, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We see these promises given in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and even ultimately Jesus himself declaring their fulfillment in himself as he does in John chapter 6, verse 33 through 35 and also verse 40 where he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is Jesus Christ, our only hope, both in life and death. Won't you trust in Him today?